Welcome to STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. Welcome to STEM Talk, where we introduce you to fascinating people who passionately inhabit the scientific and technical frontiers of our society. Hi, I'm your host, Don Cornegas. Also joining me today is Dr. Ken Ford, IHMC's director and chairman of the Double Secret Selection Committee that selects all the guests to appear on STEM Talk. Hi, Don. Great to be here with you and to discuss your fascinating conversation with Dr. Carrie Emanuel regarding hurricanes. Absolutely, especially as we are in hurricane season right now. And given the tremendous impact that hurricanes have had on the history of Pensacola and the Gulf Coast more generally, I really enjoyed learning more about hurricane physics and forecasting. Yeah, hurricanes, uh, one of my least favorite phenomena. Mm-hmm. As everyone knows, they're really the leading source of insured losses and in this area have been a major cause of human suffering and economic loss, really not just here, but all around the world. Uh, Kerry is one of the world's leading experts on hurricane research and modeling, and it was definitely a fascinating discussion. In fact, I met Kerry in the 2005-2006 timeframe when Kelvin Drogemeyer and I co-chaired a National Science Board Task Force on hurricane science and engineering. I especially loved hearing about his experience flying into hurricanes, which I have to admit sounds really cool. I'd love to try that myself sometime. Um, A cascade of ice crystals is how he described the inside wall of a hurricane. That sounds pretty amazing. Nice, uh, evocative language. Yeah. Uh, not all scientists are, seem capable of that. Absolutely. So, uh, well done. Well done. Before we get to today's interview, we have some housekeeping to take care of. First, we really appreciate all of you who have subscribed to STEM Talk. And we are especially appreciative of all the wonderful five-star reviews showing up on iTunes and elsewhere. As we announced in several earlier episodes, the Double Secret Selection Committee has been continually and carefully reviewing the iTunes reviews with an eye toward selecting the wittiest and lavishly praise-filled reviews to read on STEM Talk. As always, if you hear your review read on STEM Talk, just contact us at stemtalk at ihmc.us to claim your official STEM Talk t-shirt. Today, our winning review was posted by someone who goes by the wonderful nickname Wheel Sucker. <laughs> the review is entitled Curiosities Met. Here's the review. I'm not always curious, but when I am, I love STEM Talk and the deeply learned folks at IHMC. Subjects range from human physiology to the exploration of space with thoughtful and probing questions that simultaneously teach and entertain. Highly recommended subscription. Thank you, Wheel Sucker, and all the other STEM Talk listeners who have helped STEM Talk get off to such a great start. And what a nickname. I wonder about the genesis of this name. Unfortunately, as a former cyclist, I am quite familiar with Wheel Suckers, which refers to folks who position themselves closely behind another bicycle and essentially receive a tow via drafting the person in front of them. Now, I doubt very much that a person capable of such a fine and thoughtful review would actually be a wheel sucker. (laughs) I only share this tidbit to prevent folks from trying to visualize other possible interpretations of the term. Yeah, we all appreciate that clarification. Absolutely. Wouldn't want to do that to you. (laughs) Okay, now on to today's interview. Dr. Carrie Emanuel is the Cecil and Ida Green Professor of Atmospheric Science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he has been on the faculty since 1981. 
Carrie's research interests focus on tropical meteorology and climate with a specialty in hurricane physics. His interests also include cumulus convection and advanced methods of sampling the atmosphere to support numerical weather prediction. He is the author or co-author of over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and three books, including Divine Wind, The History and Science of Hurricanes, published by Oxford University Press and aimed at a general audience, and What We Know About Climate Change, published by the MIT Press. Kerry is also co-director of MIT's Lorenz Center, a climate think tank devoted to basic, curiosity-driven climate research. In 2006, he was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Influential People of the Year. A year later, he was elected as a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM talk. Uh, so I'd like to welcome to the podcast today Dr. Kerry Emanuel. I'm uh, delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So, Carrie, you said that you were interested in weather even as a child. Where did you grow up and what made you develop that interest? Well, it's very hard to say. My older brother, who's six years older than I, insists that when I was a few months old, I would get excited about thunderstorms and <laughs> demand to be taken to the window to look out. And that was in Ohio. And I don't remember Ohio because I moved away when I was two and lived in Pennsylvania and here in Florida for a few years. Okay. And then finally in New England. Okay. So where in Florida did you live? I lived in, uh, I, I lived in West Palm Beach for okay. three years. I was in grade school and went surfing every day after school. It was wonderful. That sounds really nice. Did you experience any hurricanes during that time? Uh, we were on the periphery of Hurricane um, trying to remember which one, actually. And I remember getting the day off from school. <laughs> but that's all I remember. So how did physics and math come together for you in exploring your interest in, in weather? That's, you know, a lot of different uh, disciplines kind of coming together. I, I guess it's kind of necessary now with the modeling that's out there. But how, how did those build as far as your educational background goes? Well, there are two things that happened. Um, I started reading more professional books in meteorology in the library when I was in high school. It certainly wasn't part of our course curriculum. And I got very interested in physics and math. And by the time I went to MIT, I realized that you could put those two together mm. and, and do research in atmospheric science. So tell us more about your educational background um, from college on. Well, I was uh, at MIT as an undergraduate mm -hmm. and also as a graduate student. So I got my PhD there in 1978. And then I went and taught at UCLA. In those days, you typically went right from graduate student to teaching. And I was there for three years and um, ended up coming back to MIT, and I've been there ever since. And so you transitioned into—why did you pick hurricanes, of all things? That came later. I um, was asked to teach a course in the meteorology of the tropics, and among other things, I had to teach hurricanes. So I dusted off my notes— <laughs> I started thinking them through. It so often happens when you have to teach something, you're not really well acquainted with the depths of your own ignorance until you're confronted with teaching it. And I realized that not only did I not understand the existing theory, but that the existing theory had to be wrong. So I um, had to go about setting it right. And I got interested in it that way. And what in particular was wrong at that point? Well, it was a uh, the existing or the reigning theory at that time held that we got a hurricane when uh, cumulus clouds or thunderstorms uh, decided they would sort of get together in a group and cooperate. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm uh, anthropomorphizing that, but but it 
didn't pay any attention to the um, transfer of energy from the ocean to the atmosphere, which ironically an earlier generation of atmospheric scientists had thought was the driving thing. I sort of independently realized that uh, this was this was what really what was going on. It was a matter of getting heat out of the ocean into the atmosphere. So essentially, you're looking at hurricane development from a physics-based perspective. Well, that's right. And the earlier theory had as well, but the earlier theory violated in many ways the conservation of energy, and that's why we had to throw it away. How so? How did it violate the conservation of energy? Well, it simply proposed that thunderstorms, um, when they're grouped together, somehow produce this enormous windstorm, which dissipates a huge amount of energy without asking where the energy came from. Mm -hmm. Thunderstorms release fairly modest amounts of energy by atmospheric standards, and if you just put 10 of them together, um, you're you're drawing on the same reservoir of energy. You can't just get 10 times the, uh, the magnitude of the effect. You have to put more energy into the system somehow. So just to kind of take a step back, our podcast covers a variety of different topics in science and technology and engineering mathematics. Can you provide just a a basic overview on tropical cyclone formation? How does that happen in the first place? Yeah, that's a very interesting question that we don't really have a definite answer to. We're much better at saying how they run once they're operating. It's a little bit like drawing the distinction between how the engine in your car works when it's running and how the starter motor works when you're trying to get it started. Um, Hurricanes have the unusual attribute that they cannot arise out of very small uh, fluctuations in the atmosphere the way many other atmospheric storms can arise, like thunderstorms or winter storms. You actually have to give the atmosphere a pretty big push to get a hurricane. It won't just start spontaneously. The way the mature hurricane works, by contrast, is better understood. It's a giant engine that uh, takes heat out of the ocean, and that heat is transferred to the atmosphere whenever water evaporates. So everyone has the experience that when you're wet, you feel cold because water is evaporating from your skin, taking that heat energy out of your body. That heat energy doesn't disappear. It gets added to the air. And uh, when large quantities of ocean water evaporate into uh, hurricanes, particularly the evaporation is very strong when the wind is blowing hard, that uh, energy is transformed later into into heat, and that's what drives the engine. And so um, the whole thing occurs because the tropical atmosphere has a distinctly different temperature from the tropical ocean. It's sort of operating on that temperature gradient, if you will. Um, What we don't really understand to this day about hurricanes is how they get started. And there are empirically many different ways of starting hurricanes. There's not just one way. That's still a very active area of research in atmospheric science. And does it vary based on the time of year and location of formation? That's right. So, for example, in the Atlantic, during the peak of hurricane season, many, but not all, hurricanes originate as disturbances called African easterly waves. They form over eastern uh, Africa, south of the Sahel region, in the uh, generally east-to-west flow that occurs in that 
part of the world at that time of the year. That's why they're called easterly waves. They're like the lows and highs you see on um, typical weather maps at higher latitudes, except that it's summer, and these storms, rather than moving from west to east, are moving from east to west. They would, they're not hurricanes. They're, they, do, they are associated with some rain and thunderstorms. When they move out over the ocean, sometimes, but by no means always, they will trigger hurricanes. But that's just one route. There are other ways that hurricanes can form in other places at other times. For example, a cold front penetrating unusually deep into the tropics can sometimes trigger hurricanes. Other kinds of upper, upper atmospheric disturbances can do so. There's a large variety, and as you say, it depends on where you are and the time of year. Interesting. So how does a hurricane intensify then? So there's a kind of a feedback loop where once you get the starter engine going and the hurricane is off and running to the races, as the winds begin to accelerate at the surface, um, evaporation of seawater proceeds faster. And um, everybody has the experience that if you're wet and the wind blows, you feel colder than when it isn't blowing. That's an illustration of the dependence of the evaporation rate on wind. So the stronger the wind blows, the more heat is transferred from the ocean to the atmosphere via evaporation. The more heat you put into the heat engine, the stronger it gets and the stronger the wind blows and so forth until you get up to a a peak intensity, which is well-defined. We can tell you what the peak intensity is if we know the the temperature of the ocean and atmosphere before the hurricane started. And, And then it levels off at that intensity. Of course, eventually it dies because it moves into unfavorable regions. Well, speaking of which, um, have you ever flown into a hurricane? Oh, yes. Yes, I have. And um, there are people flown into hurricanes far more often than I have, but I've perhaps done it 10 times or so. Um, I think everybody should do it. Um, (laughs) It's magnificent, especially the sight of the eye of a hurricane from the inside. You know, you can take pictures of it. Of course, people have, but it just doesn't begin to convey what it's like to be in there. So can you tell us what the experience is like traveling like, through the intensity of the hurricane and then also being in the, in the eye? Yeah, sure. First of all, when you're flying in, it's just like flying in relatively bad weather on a commercial airliner. You don't see much out the window because it's all cloudy and, and rainy and so forth. It's turbulent, but uh, at least on the flights I've been on, Uh, I can say truthfully that it's never been as turbulent as I've experienced on commercial airliners Hmm. um, on some occasions. Of course, I do a lot more flying on commercial airliners than in hurricanes. But the hurricane pilots really know what they're doing. Hurricanes above, you know, if you get appreciably above the ocean, although the wind's blowing very hard, it's not usually that turbulent. You know, a lot of people tuning into this podcast will be aware that or have been on commercial airliners, and the pilot comes on and says, gee, we have a 100-mile-an-hour headwind, we're going to be late, or a 100-mile-an-hour tailwind, we're going to be early. And yet, you don't notice that. And what causes discomfort on an airplane is variations of wind that occur on the scale of the airplane, a few hundred feet. And, and hurricanes are great, grand phenomena. They, they occur on scales of hundreds of miles. The eye itself is almost always completely calm, 
And it's just a magnificent visual experience. It's like being in a Roman Colosseum, except that it's white. And rather than being a few hundred feet across, it's 20 or 30 or 40 miles across. Wow. And it gets wider as you go up. It's magnificent blue sky. Sometimes there's a cascade of ice crystals, like a waterfall of ice crystals down along the inside of the eye wall. It's, um, I, have been, I have fantasized about starting a hurricane safari operation for paying customers after I retire. I even have identified a pilot who wants to do it. So hey, that's maybe a good we'll start. come to pass someday. <laughs> Well, we heard it first here on IHMC <laughs> podcast. Um, so um, that's really interesting. I think so. You were talking about the eye itself. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that forms and the physics behind that? Yes. So um, the physics really fundamentally is the physics of something called angular momentum conservation. So if you have a spinning body and you take some part of the mass that spinning, spinning body and you move it toward the axis of rotation, the spin increases. The, the classic illustration for that is a, a spinning ice skater who draws in her arms, and by that mechanism, her rate of spin increases. That's the conservation of angular momentum. So air spiraling in toward the center of the hurricane within a few thousand feet of the ocean surface um, spins up from the conservation of angular momentum. And that's fine, as the air would just continue to spin up, but there's a limit on that, and that's, uh, that's because of the conservation of another quantity called energy. And that conservation of energy tells you the wind speed cannot exceed, you know, let's call it 200 miles an hour in a particular case. And again, that depends on the temperature of the ocean, the atmosphere. But once air has moved in so far that it's spinning at 200 miles an hour in this case, it can't move in any further because then it would have to spin up and that violates the conservation of energy. So instead it, it goes rocketing up uh, what we call the eye wall, which is the annulus, a very a heavy cloud that surrounds the eye. So uh, the air never really makes it into the center. Actually, that isn't quite true. Some air is so slowed down by friction that it can make it into the center. Um, so you have this sort of calm region, but um, it's, it's in contact with this rapidly spinning eye wall. And so turbulence begins to actually make the air in the eye spin. And um, when that happens, the air descends. It has to go down for the same reason that if you spin a bucket of water, you'll notice that as the water in the bucket begins to spin up, the center of the surface of the water drops down. And so the, the water near the center has to sink in the bucket, and the air near the center of the eye has to sink for the same reason. And when it sinks, it dries out. That's why the eye is typically free of clouds except in a thin layer near the ocean. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know I didn't know any of that. So that's really interesting. And it's you know you always um hear forecasters um talking about when a hurricane is moving in they or they're tracking a hurricane or looking at hurricane intensity they're always talking about the strength of the eye and the formation of the eye. So that makes sense as to why that's a, a good measure as far as the hurricane intensity goes. That's right. I mean, one of the challenges for forecasters is knowing what the intensity of the hurricane is right now. If you don't know what it is now, it's hard to forecast it. And 
if you are lucky enough to have a reconnaissance aircraft flying in the storm, they're making measurements and you pretty much know how strong it is. But for most storms in most parts of the world, we don't have aircraft flying in them. And just looking at a satellite image doesn't really tell you the wind speed. And so there are all kinds of rules of thumb that are used, one of which is that when an eye forms, it's usually when the wind speed exceeds marginal hurricane strength. What are some of the other um, rules of thumb that you have with respect to just looking at an image of a hurricane and, and determining the, its strength? Well, there, there are a whole bunch of um, rules of thumb that are codified in something called the Dvorak scale or the Dvorak method, uh, which was invented by a forecast uh, meteorologist, Vern Dvorak, some decades ago. And it basically points to many different features of visual features of hurricanes as they appear in satellite images as clues to the intensity of the storm. So, for example, sometimes you get a second eye wall form outside the first one, and that is, is a clue to a change in the intensity. The appearance of these spiral bands of thunderstorms or their non-appearance are also clues to the intensity. So going back to you're talking about the intensification process, um, how is that impacted by changes in different aspects of our climate? So say temperature and humidity, do they have uh, a, an impact on hurricane intensity? Oh, yes. And you know, we've spent a long time, we collectively have spent a long time trying to understand that in the last two or three decades. It's a very, very interesting problem uh, with lots of complications. So if the ocean temperature didn't, didn't actually, wasn't itself actually affected by the hurricane, and if there isn't any wind shear in the atmosphere, hurricanes kind of intensify to the speed limit that I talked about before, which is really dependent on how warm the ocean is and the, the whole temperature of the atmosphere all the way up into the lower part of the stratosphere. And if we know that environmental condition, we can sort of predict how intense the storm will become. But in practice, in reality, two things prevent, two things in principle, prevent hurricanes, most hurricanes, from living up to their potential. One is that there's almost always some wind shear around. And we think that wind shear is destructive by uh, importing dry air two or three or four miles above the ocean surface into the core of the hurricane. And it's like throwing water on a fire, basically. It's an anti-fuel, uh, and it causes the hurricane to weaken. So we need to be able to predict that wind shear very accurately, and we don't necessarily predict it all that accurately in the tropics. The other factor that comes in, particularly when hurricanes are more intense, is their ability to churn up cold water from deeper in the ocean. This is strongly observed. We know this happens. And uh, that churning up cold water uh, also limits how much heat you can put into the hurricane and thereby weakens the storm. One of the forecast challenges is that in reality, we don't usually know very much about the temperature of the ocean beneath the surface. We have very good measurements of the surface temperature, but if you start to go deeper in the ocean, there's not very many measurements down there. 
Um, that's being solved by some very interesting um, robotic technology, which we can talk about if you like. But at the moment, we don't have a good we don't have good measurements of the subsurface temperature, and that limits our ability to forecast how strong this uh, negative feedback of ocean upwelling uh, would be in a particular case. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about the subsurface me- measurement research? Yeah, so some very ingenious engineers and scientists got together 10 or 15 years ago and came up with a a beautiful uh, robotic device for measuring the properties of the ocean beneath the surface. So I should back up a little bit and say that the measurement problem is much more difficult than the atmosphere for a simple reason that radio waves go through the atmosphere, but they don't go through water. Mm -hmm. So I can't send a probe in the ocean and have it radio back information that doesn't work. So what these engineers came up with is a float that uh, sits on the surface and charges its batteries through solar power and other things. And then um, it, uh, like a submarine, uh, fills its tanks with water and dives down making measurements all along the way, recording them within the device, and then goes all the way down uh, more than a mile into the ocean and then comes back up, again, making measurements along the way. And when it gets to the surface, it radios that information to satellites and then to uh, anybody who wants to see it. And uh, it's brilliant. And the other thing I think is particularly brilliant is that the people who wanted to deploy these floats um, got individual nations to underwrite floats and kind of got those nations to compete with each other. So each one of these floats has a little national flag on it, or at least I understand it does, and, and countries are competing with each other to see who can fund the most Argo floats. So the ocean filled with these now. That's really cool. It is really cool. Yeah. So those are called Argo floats, you said? Argo, Argo floats. Okay. Right? Um, yeah, that's fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit more about how hurricane prediction models are generated? Sure. So um, we have to, first of all, make a distinction between prediction and projection. Mm-hmm. It's a bit subtle. So hurricane prediction is when we take an existing hurricane or one that's about to form and try to predict where it will go and how strong it will be. It's a weather forecast. Okay. Right. Whereas projection is trying to understand how the statistics of hurricanes over a long time might change because the climate's changing. So shall I interpret your question as addressing the first of those to begin with? Yeah, a specific hurricane. So essentially you're saying the latter is at the beginning of hurricane season, we always see a release of, we we predict it's going to be a, a relatively strong or weak hurricane season. Am I correct? Exactly. And that's an example of a projection. Okay. So the ahead. prediction... Um, is in many ways a wonderful success story. That is, demonstrably, without any doubt, we're much better at predicting the tracks of hurricanes now than we were 30 years ago. It's a steady improvement. Uh, On the intensity side, it's it's a less satisfying story. There's been a little bit of improvement in recent years, but not all that much. So why, what goes into these models and what is a model? A lot of people get confused about what a model is. And when we talk about models, we talk about the computational solution of the equations that govern the behavior of the atmosphere and in some cases the ocean as well. 
we know what those equations are, and we can ask, they're, they're much too complicated to solve by hand, we can program computers to solve them. But that's the easy part. The hard part is uh, due to a lot of different things. First of all, in forecasting anything at all, you know, whether you're forecasting the weather or the trajectory of a cannonball, you have to know where you're starting from. In the cannonball case, it's obvious. You have to know where the cannonball is now if you want to forecast where it's going to be after it goes out of the barrel of the cannon. If you if the cannon uh, is off, if your location of the cannon is off by 50 feet, then your projection of or your prediction of where the cannonball went will likewise be off 50 feet. So in the case of a fluid like the atmosphere, that initial state is the distribution in space of the temperature, pressure, water vapor, and winds primarily. And, and how are you going to do that? Because you're not measuring the temperature and the winds and so forth everywhere. And um, starting from the right state is a really fine art. And if you get it wrong, it's much worse than the cannonball problem because the if you get it wrong, the forecast not only will start off wrong, but it will get more wrong very quickly. And that's thanks to the phenomenon called chaos. Mm-hmm. Chaos is, is basically a term we apply to systems that are very sensitive to their initial condition. You perhaps are familiar with the story of the modern discovery of chaos by my, my late colleague, Ed Lorenz, when he um, was doing some calculations of a very simple system, a convecting system, using a very primitive early computer. And uh, he decided he wanted to go back and restart the calculation uh, for various reasons, and he did. And he copied down the numbers, but he, you know, the, the numbers might have been like point you know, 1.364509s, a real hopelessly precise number. So he said, well, it won't matter if I just chop off the last three decimal points. You know, it's just, they're just tiny. And he chopped them off and restarted it and went out to get a cup of coffee. And when he came back, these uh, the predictions were entirely different after a while. Um, so just that tiny little error, which we have since, uh, owing partially to Ed Lorenz, call the metaphorically butterflies, mm-hmm. a little flap of a butterfly's wings, you know, at the very beginning can make the, a huge difference between solutions at the end. So getting the, the atmosphere is chaotic and getting the initial condition right is, is the really hard part. The other, there are a lot of other things going on. We can't uh, computationally resolve all the things that are physically important in the atmosphere. We solve these equations on a lattice we can't afford to make the lattice very fine. And we have to account for the physics that are happening on scales that aren't being explicitly calculated. That's a, a black art, which I participated in in the past, called parameterization. And uh, all of those things contribute to model error. And the success story is that over decades, we've gotten better and better and better at it. And um, so there's an enormous amount of work that goes into a computational weather forecast. And nowadays, there are many different countries who run models, and that's a good thing because we've learned that having a diversity of models gives you a better forecast and a better appreciation of how uncertain that forecast is likely to be. 
So how much do these models incorporate historical data? Um, that's a good question. So the way we do things today is that in order to analyze the current state of the atmosphere to make the next forecast, we start with an old forecast, a forecast from maybe 12 hours ago. In other words, if you didn't know anything about the atmosphere today, you didn't, weren't making measurements, your best guess at what it would be is, say, a forecast, a computational forecast you made, let's say, 12 hours ago. So you begin with that, and then you take that state and you update it by uh, incorporating into it the measurements that we're making right now. And that's a process we call data assimilation. So every forecast we make has a little bit of history in it. It has, um, you know, explicitly, uh, you start with the forecast 12 hours ago, and um, uh, that forecast is not modified everywhere. So there's a little bit of that forecast that goes into the initial state. In turn, the state that you use to generate that forecast had older information. In it. So in that sense... Uh, there's a, a memory, if you will, of the, the when you when you assimilate data, you're making use of the fact that you also know something about the weather in the past, mm -hmm. in the recent past. But there's no long-term historical information that goes into a weather forecast. So I was wondering. I, I know you know you start looking at a a forecast track for a hurricane, and then they'll compare notes on hurricanes that started or, you know, travel kind of along similar paths and show where they go to. So I was wondering if there, so it doesn't uh, sound like there's any incorporation of that data into the current models. No, um, no, there is not. And what we call what you just described is analog forecasting. In other words, if I didn't have computers and I didn't have any real understanding of the physics, and I was just a great statistician, and that was it, mm -hmm. not a great physicist, I'd say, oh, let's look for some close analogies in the past. And you might imagine that if you had, instead of 100 years of history, you had 10,000 years of history, you might be able to find a close enough analogy to make good forecasts. But we know from some theoretical work that was done, including by Ed Lorenz, that this is not a promising avenue at all. Mm -hmm. You may think it looks the same, but chaos will always ensure that there are, in the end, big differences. So I was just thinking the flap of the butterfly's wings. <laughs> Make yeah, no, no. We Computational uh, weather prediction is pulled way ahead of any uh, kind of analog forecasting technique. STEM Talk is an educational service of the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, a not-for-profit research lab pioneering groundbreaking technologies aimed at leveraging and extending human cognition, perception, locomotion, and resilience. So are we better at weather or hurricane prediction and projection um, nowadays? And can you give some examples in the past century of where we've done well with respect to prediction? We have got steadily better by all metrics in uh, predicting the track that hurricanes will take and in detecting them. You know, the 1938 New England hurricane, which was a terrible tragedy, hit with no warning at all. 
Nobody had the slightest inkling that there was even a possibility of a hurricane. Wow, that would be something to wake up to. (laughs) It really was. And uh, I wasn't around then, but a lot of people of the next generation up that I knew were, and they were completely surprised. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, Nobody is surprised. Sometimes there are surprises about the exact track that it takes. On the other hand, we haven't gotten much better at forecasting for tomorrow or the next day, how strong a hurricane will be. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a lot of work on that. Perfect. So right now we're in Pensacola, which is a town that's historically besieged by hurricanes. Can you explain to our listeners, a lot of whom don't have the um, meteorology experience that you do, why that's the case? Sure. Well, hurricanes are creatures of of warm tropical ocean waters, Mm -hmm. and the Gulf of Mexico in the summer is a great example of that. So not only do hurricanes, some hurricanes form in the Gulf of Mexico, but they often form in the tropical Atlantic and the Caribbean, and their typical tracks take them westward and northward. So quite a few of them end up in the Gulf of Mexico, where they can continue to be sustained by the warm water. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so dangerous in some ways around the the shores of the Gulf. It's kind of the perfect breeding ground, a perfect support network, I guess, for those kind of hurricanes. That's right. And so how does Pensacola compare to other places in the U.S. or even around the world? Well, um, if you compare Pensacola to the rest of the Gulf Coast, Mm -hmm. from Florida all the way around to Texas, it's, it's pretty much equal risk of Mm. strong hurricanes. But of course, by chance, uh, you may have had fewer or more over the last century or so because they're fairly rare. And we think if we look at um, geological records of sediments in this area, and that has been done, we think actually the region has been pretty lucky over the last century compared to what's uh, been true over the last few thousand years. That's interesting. Well, hopefully that that luck continues. <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. Yes. So when you're talking about looking at a season, so the projection models, um, do you do those take into account climate change? No, they well, not as people generally understand that term today. In other words, they don't take into account global warming. Uh, Not really, Um, but they do take into account what we call short-term climate change. So a very important way you can get skill in seasonal projections is El Nino, and we call El Nino a climate phenomenon. It's a natural climate phenomenon. So uh, if forecasters know, as they did this year, that the hurricane season is likely to be during an El Nino, which it is, Uh, they will forecast that it will be very quiet, which they did for this year. And so far, it has been very quiet. So it's a successful forecast. But they they don't explicitly account for what we call global warming because that occurs over such a long time that it doesn't really make any difference over one season. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about global warming, so climate change as we discuss it today in the public. do you does does that have an impact on hurricane formation and intensity? Well, this is a subject of a lot of very interesting research, which I'm involved in, and quite a few of my colleagues are. Uh, it's not a solved problem, but here is what you know, there is kind of a consensus developing about what's going to happen, and the key points of that consensus are this: that we think that the frequency of the very high category hurricanes particularly threes, fours, and fives, 
in general will go up as you warm the climate. And that's because you're raising the speed limit, if you will, for hurricane wind speeds. But um, at the same time, um, there's a little bit more controversy about what might happen to the frequency of the weaker hurricanes. Uh, most studies of this suggest that that might actually go down. Hmm. Now, um, so a lot, some, sometimes it falls into, I think, an unhelpful shorthand that the frequency goes down and the intensity goes up. The reason I don't like that is that um, frequency of all hurricanes is completely dominated by weak storms. There are a lot more weak storms than there are strong storms. On the other hand, it's the strong storms that do most of the damage in most places. 80% of the damage done historically by hurricanes in the United States has been done by Category 3 and higher storms at landfall. So from a practical point of view, we have to be concerned with the frequency of high-intensity events, and the consensus is that will go up. Now, uh, along with that, those high-intensity events are associated with strong storm surges, which is the tsunami-like phenomenon that's uh, driven by hurricane winds, and which in practice kills a lot of people in hurricanes and causes most problems, as it did during hurricanes Katrina and Sandy, for example, in the U.S. So the consensus is actually, fortunately, in an area which is of greatest societal concern, which is what happens to the intense storms. In addition to that, there's a very, very strong consensus, because it's built on very fundamental physics, that a given hurricane will rain more. And the reason that's important is the second leading cause of loss of life in these storms is freshwater flooding from heavy, heavy rains. Hmm. Unfortunately, that is going to get worse, almost for sure, uh, as the climate warms. And, and why is that? Well, that's due to an elementary piece of physics called the Clausius-Clapeyron equation. And the Clausius-Clapeyron equation simply tells you how much, what concentration of water vapor you can have in the atmosphere at a given temperature. And, and it shows that as the temperature goes up, the amount of water you can have in the air goes up exponentially with the temperature. So for every 10 degrees C, um, about 18 degrees Fahrenheit of increase in temperature, you can double the amount of water that you, the atmosphere can hold when it's saturated. So I'm going to get back to the weather prediction models uh, with another question. Um, you know, we look at weather forecasts and you always hear people kind of going, oh, well, they, they only have to look a week out and they still can't get it right and, you know, mumbling right. and grumbling about it. Why can we only predict weather within a relatively short time frame? Is this going back to the whole idea of small variations and fluctuations and, and, and harnessing those? It is. But, you know, there's something very profound about this that very few people have been told about, and I'd like to tell you about it. Um, it's often, the theory of chaos is often described as a kind of practical limit on what you can forecast in certain systems. But it's much more profound than that. It's not just a practical limit, it's a theoretical limit that you cannot go beyond no matter what resources you throw. So here's how you think about it. Um, supposing I uh, start with two almost identical states of the atmosphere and I run them forward in a computer model. Well, at first, they're going to be very 
similar, and as time goes on, they'll diverge due to this butterfly effect. And after a long enough time, they will look as different from each other as any two arbitrary states of the atmosphere. So when it gets to be close to this sort of saturation, we'll, we'll call that the predictability horizon. That is, it's, you know, when you get beyond that, the forecast basically becomes useless. It's too wrong. So you might think that as you make these two starting states closer and closer and closer together, that this predictability horizon gets further and further and further off in time. You can make better forecasts for longer. But the theory of chaos tells us that for many systems, and we think the atmosphere is in, that this time horizon doesn't indefinitely get bigger and bigger. Even as you make the initial two initial states almost perfectly the same, um, that time horizon may be two weeks, and you're never going to budget beyond that, no matter how small you make the error. Mm -hmm. So for all practical purposes, the system is, in, is not deterministic beyond two weeks. And so that's the problem that we're up against. We'll never really be able to make precise forecasts beyond that time. And it's unreasonable for anyone to expect that we will. Theoretically, we can't. And so we can do better for sure than we're doing now. One of the big challenges in meteorology and one of the big accomplishments in meteorology that's, that's unsung largely is that we have gotten really good at being able to say how uncertain a particular weather forecast is likely to be. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that important? Well, take Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy uh, was well forecast almost uh, 10 days ahead of time. And we knew that that was going to be a good forecast. You can ask me if you like how we know that, but we knew. Other events, uh, we know that even after three days, it's likely to be a very bad forecast. In other words, we can forecast how skillful our forecasts are. That's a very profound thing to be able to do. What we have not mastered is how to convey that to the public. How <laughs> to convey to the public that this forecast is likely to be very good, and that forecast that we might make the very next day uh, for a different kind of system is not likely to be very good. How do you actually get that point across? And we struggle with that every day. That's really interesting. So essentially, it's almost looking at accuracy and precision and forecasting. Um, and you guys are getting really good at improving both of those. Well, I think um, it's, it's a bit different from that because, you know, if you think about the concept of an error bar, mm -hmm. you know, I, I say that the temperature tomorrow in Boston will be 75 degrees plus or minus two degrees. That is, I'm likely to be off by two degrees, all right? Now, I'm actually making two forecasts. I'm making a forecast that the high temperature in Boston will be 75, and I'm also making a forecast that the error in that forecast is likely to be plus or minus two degrees. Now, it might be that the day after tomorrow, I will make a forecast for the next day that says the high temperature in Boston will be 75 plus or minus four degrees mm -hmm. because I've gotten good at forecasting that uncertainty. And... Um, so it's, it's a second kind of forecast. And you can see I'm struggling just to convey it to you here, right? Um, the whole profession struggles to convey that to the public. How do we... And it's a matter of being absolutely, totally above boards honest about how certain we are about a particular forecast. And the fact of the matter is 
that we can scientifically and rigorously say something about that level of uncertainty in any particular forecast. And it varies from place to place and time to time. Well, so what are researchers focusing on to improve your uh, forecasting? So you talked about how this has improved. What What's being done right now to further improve that? Three things, principally. Better measurements, better computer models, which rely to some extent on faster computers, and better ways of assimilating the better measurements into the better models. And how is that being done? Uh, through research, um, very high-level research all over the country, all over the world, in universities, in research laboratories, and in some cases by government weather forecasting operations. And, and do researchers tend to collaborate a fair bit on a national or international scale with respect to sharing data and information that they're, they're collecting or even open source um, uh, model development? Absolutely. With some rare exceptions, uh, it's an extremely cooperative enterprise. The, the bad boys, I have to say, in this arena are the Europeans. The Europeans, and it's not the scientists, it's their governments, decided some decades ago that they could make money from selling weather data. This is unprecedented at the time. Um, the, the wonderful tradition had been that environmental data that was paid for by governments was shared freely and openly. So even at the peak of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were freely sharing weather observations. The Europeans um, decided that they could take this government-funded data and make more money for the governments by selling it. So, for example, it's widely agreed that some of the very best computer forecasts today are generated by the Europeans through a collaborative organization called the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts. But if you or I want to see those forecasts beyond maybe something quite superficial, we have to pay through the nose for it. Everybody else, like Canada, the United States, and most other parts of the world, subscribe to the older idea that since the taxpayer has paid for this data, it should be made as freely available as humanly possible. And the U.S. is really good at that. Uh, our forecasts are in some ways inferior, but um, uh, our computer forecasts are in some ways inferior. But they're free and open to anybody. You can go and download the raw the numbers from the computer right now if you wanted to. Yeah, I've seen uh, even forums where people dabble in, in weather prediction and is that where they're getting their data from? Absolutely. Okay. And this is the thing that's so um, the thing that that is so strange about the European model is that economists have demonstrated that even if the only thing you were concerned with was how much money the government would make, uh, it's an inferior model. And and just as you suggested in the United States. The, free, the freedom of the data has led to a lot of free enterprise, small companies, that do specialized tailored forecasts starting from the freely available data. And, of course, those companies are taxed just like any company would be. The government gets much more money that way than the Europeans do by trying to sell that same data. So it's a poor model 
and uh, we're constantly working on them to abandon it in favor of the the more um, gracious and more economic model of, of uh, sharing environmental data. So I'm going to switch over to your research on climatology. So in your book, What We Know About Climate Change, you talk about considering the outliers with respect to global warming, potential temperature increases, and you emphasize how we should be focused on those outliers. Um, in science, we tend to focus on scenarios with a higher probability. So why do you think we should focus on these potential outliers with respect to temperature increase? And what kind of impact could these outliers have on human, human civilization? Well, that's an excellent question. It's the crux of matters. It's the way a rational person or organization deals with risk. So um, let me try to illustrate that with a simple example. If you are uh, taking your eight-year-old daughter to catch a school bus and you're a bit late, and to, in order to catch the bus which is about to leave, she'd have to cross a busy street. And if she misses the bus you'll have to drive her to school, all right? So this is the sort of thing that can happen and does happen to everybody all the time, something like this. So supposing uh, you had instant access to a great physicist or mathematician when you reached the street who said, you know, um, if you let your daughter run to catch the bus, there's a 1% chance she'll be run over and killed, okay? Now, what are you going to do? Um, Almost everybody, and perhaps everybody, would say, no, I'm not going to let her run. One percent is too much. Mm -hmm. And even though there's a 99% probability that she'd make it, you aren't going to do that. And what we're doing is we're taking into account two things. What's the actual risk? One percent she'll be run over. And what's the consequences of that risk materializing? And in this case, the consequences are so horrendous that nobody take the chance. Mm -hmm. So... The, the, the basic point about climate change is when you're thinking about it, you have to quantify the risk of certain levels of climate change. There's, you know, there's almost, it's almost certain that there'll be more than a degree of warming. Uh, there's a 50% chance there'll be more than two or three degrees of warming. And there's a 10% chance there'll be more than four or five degrees of warming by the end of the century, something like that. Okay. And then you start working out what are the consequences. Well, if it's one degree, there's not much. If there's two or three degrees, there's going to be a lot of adjustment and people will have to pay to adapt to it and so forth. If it's four or five degrees, the world could erupt in armed conflict because of water and food shortages, and then we've really bought the farm, all right? So when thinking about what should we do, if anything, you have to think about both the risk and the consequences. And a prudent conservative person usually errs on the side of, of not taking the risk. Uh, if there's a five or 10% chance of global armed conflict, well, it's worth paying something to now to do, or, or at least taking the time and effort to try to avoid that. So that's just the framework for how people, generally speaking, especially rational people and organizations, deal with the risk. So essentially prepare for the worst. Well, not always. Not always. If the worst isn't very bad at all in a different arena, right, then you don't have to prepare. Then you would just sort of, if, if, you, if you and I went to the horse races and we agreed that horse number five is the most probable winner, we're just going to bet on horse number five, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Because... There's, it doesn't matter whether we 
wrote on course number 10 or number one or number two, you can't be more wrong than just being wrong, right? It doesn't really make any difference. You're either right or you're wrong. You either win or you lose. Um, and, and so in that arena, you just go with the most probable outcome. But in other problems, the consequences uh, depend upon, you know, the, the, the outcome. The consequences of three degrees of temperature changes are very different from the consequences of five degrees. And so all I'm saying and everyone else is saying is you have to, to take that into account when you bet on the risk. That makes sense. So what do you think we should be focusing on with respect to countermeasure development for climate protection to, to minimize, um, one, to minimize the chance that we move into one of these outliers, but two, to kind of protect ourselves against, you know, worst case scenario? Well, I'm a big advocate of looking at the fact that almost any kind of risk or programs deal with risk also entails opportunity. That is, look on the bright side. We have an opportunity here to transform our energy systems ahead of the curve. And what do I mean by that? Well, if there were no climate change and no problem, problem with climate change, eventually anyway, we'd have to transform our energy systems. Eventually, we run out of fossil fuels, maybe a long time out. Um, we have a big opportunity here, and one of the things I'm most excited about, I mean, there's a lot of discussion of solar and wind. That's fine. There are some drawbacks to both of them, and the big, big drawback is you simply can't do 100% today of either because of the simple fact that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, mm -hmm. and we don't store energy very well. But one piece of technology I'm very excited about, and a lot of my colleagues are, is next-generation fission um, energy. Um, we shouldn't be uh, designing or building 1960s-generation nuclear power stations if for no other reason than they generate large volumes of very dangerous waste. We still haven't learned how to deal with them. The next what we call generation four fission reactors can be built that, among many other virtues, can consume this waste that's been stockpiling all around the world and turn it into much safer um, waste with half-lives of 100 years as opposed to 10,000 years, which can be safely buried. These next-generation plants cannot melt down. They're physically incapable of it, and they burn a much higher fraction of the energy available in the, nu in the, in the nuclear fuel. And um, over the lifetime of the plant, uh, somewhat cheaper than solar and wind. It's almost a no-brainer, and yet um, the, the word nuclear is such a red flag for environmentalists and others that the political barriers are immense. The technical barriers are not. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a matter of will. Um, so I'm going around and a lot of my colleagues in the climate business who really would like to see us take this opportunity. The way I like to put it is the, the issue boils down to because the rest of the world, besides the United States and a few countries, do take climate change seriously. It boils down to the question of whether in 30 years we're going to be buying clean energy from China and India or selling it to them. That's our choice now. And, and now is the time to make that change. Now is the time to make that change. And one of the 
the physical problems you're up against is once you put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it takes thousands of years for it to go go away, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, unless we develop technology for pulling the carbon back out of the atmosphere, that's not impossible, by the way. We can do it. We just can't do it economically at the moment. Um, unless we can do that, we're going to be stuck with carbon dioxide, whatever levels of carbon dioxide are in the atmosphere when we finally get control of the situation, we'll be stuck with that for thousands of years. So we really do are in the, the driver's seat now. And it's now in the next decade or so that the important decisions will be made. So, Carrie, just, um, I think you've got like one or two minutes before you've got to run, well, one minute probably. So I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. <laughs> if you had an unlimited research budget, what would your focus be over the next five years, next 15 years, next 20 years? Well, I'm afraid the answer to that is very esoteric. I'm a scientist driven by curiosity and I have all kinds of neat problems that might not interest a lot of the people listening to this. But I'm fascinated by the control of atmospheric water vapor by clouds and so forth. And there's some really neat physical problems there I'd love to pursue. And if I had a, a large budget, I'd do that. If I had a large budget, on the practical side, I would come up with much better ways of monitoring and forecasting hurricanes. One of the great tragic limitations, not so much for Atlantic hurricanes, but for the other 88% of the hurricanes that occur in the world in the Pacific and Indian Oceans is we do a pretty bad job estimating their initial intensity. I'd field a fleet of solar-powered robotic aircraft in the stratosphere launching little uh, pods on parachutes, which we have known how to do for decades, down into the troposphere to, to measure the intensity of hurricanes to improve their forecasts. I'd love to see that done. and. And uh, I think that's something that there should be a great deal of, of international political cooperation and setting up a much better framework for measuring and forecasting storms. Well, Dr. Emanuel, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. STEM Talk. That interview was fascinating, Don. Carrie is incredibly engaging and insightful about the future of weather and hurricane forecasting. He's truly at the forefront of this increasingly important field. Yeah, and I'm eager to follow up with him someday on his retirement plans to give air tours of hurricanes. Hmm, I had the opportunity to fly into a hurricane uh, once while serving in the Navy, and uh, I'll let you describe it to me when after you get your free trip. We'll compare notes, how's that sound? Okay. <laughs> If you enjoyed this interview as much as we did, I invite you to visit the STEM Talk webpage where you can find the show notes for this and other episodes, stemtalk.us. This is Don Cornega signing off for now. And this is Ken Ford saying goodbye until we meet again on STEM Talk. Thank you for listening to STEM Talk. We want this podcast to be discovered by others. So please take a minute to go to iTunes to rate the podcast and perhaps even write a review. More information about this and other episodes can be found at our website, stemtalk.us. There, you can also find more information about the guests we interview.